Good morning. So our ladies are up at Forest Home at Lady Camp, and uh, so that means that some of our guys, you're here because you needed to get out of the house and put your kids somewhere, so welcome. And then some of our guys are expectantly waiting for Final Four, we're having fun. This morning today, we are in here and we're looking at Romans 11, so you can grab the Bible that you have on your phone, your iPad, the one in front of you, the paper-bound version that you have. We're going to jump in there. Uh, We want to continue to pray for Pastor Dave, who, if you didn't hear last week, he has shingles. Um, Several people last week after I spoke said, is everything that you're saying stuff that Pastor Dave believes? Um, So I called him this week just to make sure, and we're all on the same page. Everything's okay theologically, but he also said that whatever I mess up, that he will fix and clarify when he comes back. (laughs) So that is where we are at, and we're going to have fun. Um... This morning, I want to talk about the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders being the Jewish people, the outsiders being the Gentiles. But I, I want to illustrate what is a, a fairly thick and difficult passage by telling a, a parable. You may have heard some of this before. There was a father who had two sons. The younger son came to the father and said, Father, the inheritance that you've set aside for me, for when you die, I want it now. The father, loving his son, gave him his inheritance, his share of the inheritance, and that son went out on the town and spent it in reckless and wild living. Had lots of friends for the moment and ended up with nothing. In fact, became hungry, found a job feeding pigs. Was so hungry that he was even hoping to get some of the food that the pigs had. Now, this left a room open in the father's house. So he put up an ad on Craigslist, said that we have a room for rent. All of the people during the time, they said, great. There was one that was brought in, chosen, and became a son of the father. Got to stay in the room of the younger son who had left and had now received all of the privileges, all of the inheritance, all of the honor that the other son would have received. Now word spread to the son while he's sitting in the pig slop and said, hey, did you hear what your dad had done? Since you left and you were gone, he opened up your room and now there's somebody else in there. This provoked him to jealousy. He said, what am I doing here? I was on the inside with him. Now I'm on the out. I wonder if he will take me back. He prepares a speech, he comes back, and he is welcomed back with loving arms from his father, and they had bunk beds. This is an overly simplified version of what we want to talk about today. This idea that salvation went to the Jewish people. The Jewish people were God's chosen people from the very beginning, but they rejected God. They were hardened. They were sidelined. And the description in the picture here is that there was a great party and the Jews were the insiders and at some point they left the building. And when they left, the door was wide open and the outsiders, the Gentiles, came in. 
We're going to look at some of the dynamics because the question that has to be asked and that, that Paul is asking is, is God done with the insiders? Is God done with Israel forever? Has everything that was going to be given to the insiders now going to the outsiders and now there's no more plan for the insiders? And I want to start in Romans chapter 10 and we're going to actually just back up one verse to Romans 10.21 before we jump into 11. And this is what it says there. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the Jewish people and God is saying, I've stretched out my hands. I have this picture of the father of the two sons that we read about in the prodigal son story from Luke 15. This this father that is reaching out to his sons. I love you. I want you, but you're disobedient, you're obstinate, you're stubborn, you're stiff-necked, your heart has been hardened. And that leads right into the next chapter and the next verse. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? This is the question. Is God done with the Jewish people forever? Are they gone? All of the inheritance, all of the promise... Has it gone to the Gentiles and the Jews have been written out of God's plan? I want you to know today that God has a plan and his plan includes the Jewish people. Sometimes we are very secure and happy in our own salvation and we have gotten stuck in this small story of what is God doing just in me? I I hope today that we can back up a little bit and see the forest from the trees and be able to say God is up to something far greater, far bigger than what I think is going on. So this question, I say then, has God rejected his people? Is God done with Israel? God forbid. It says, may it never be. And, and Paul goes on and he talks about this. Now look, he says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He knew from the beginning. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? We're going back now to 1 Kings 19. Remember, this is an Old Testament study. Paul's constantly bringing in passages from the Old Testament. So this is the story of Elijah. Elijah's talking to God. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. They're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God has always kept for himself a remnant. Paul says in the New Testament time there, I'm a remnant. I'm Jewish. I'm an Israelite, descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Doesn't get more Jewish than that. And God has saved me. I am part of that remnant. Elijah said, I'm a remnant of one. God, they're going to kill me. And then what? What about your promises to your people? God said, no, no, it's not a remnant of one. It's a remnant of 7,001. God keeps a remnant. God has a remnant even today. And thankfully, I have to say I'm part of that. I'm a third generation Jewish believer. Thank you. (laughs) 
There's two of us, maybe. <laughs> now, there are people on my dad's side of the family that have been part of God's gracious election. God in his grace has said, you are my people, you are part and among my elect. On my mom's side, my grandparents never came to know the Lord. Lost, not part of the elect. They are Jewish. And it says this remnant has been according to God's election of grace. In verse 5, in the same way, there's also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, we, we, we jumped into it a little bit. We got our toe wet last week when we talked about this concept of election. Now, there's... We're going to jump in again, just a little bit. And I, I don't want to say this to divide us, because there are people on both sides of this equation that God has predestined, or it's our free will, Calvinism, Arminianism. You can have five-point Calvinism, four-point Calvinism. I mean, they, we, we could divide lines all we want. What, what I want you to hear right now, my disclaimer is, it is absolutely okay for you to disagree with me. Um, but I want that to push you to study on your own, to get into the Word and figure out what is it that you believe about this. And I want to share a little bit from both sides. So I want to jump into 1 Corinthians. So just turn a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians is the next book in the Bible. And I'm in chapter 1. This is going to, I just want to talk about God's election, that, that God has chosen a group of people to be His. And we want to talk about why is that. In verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Do you see this three times in a row? God is the one that does the choosing. Why? So that no man may boast before God. God is the one that does the choosing so that we can't come back and say, look what I did to get my own salvation. We talked about this last week, that God is the one that saves. We don't save ourselves. And then it goes on, but by his doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It is from him, it is not from you, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why, why did God set up this whole idea of election? I believe is to shut our mouths from boasting and to open our mouths to declaring his gracious praise. I think that that's what God is up to. Now look in the book of John. John, which is at times profoundly simple. I think even after studying everything that I looked at this week, I feel like I need to reread it. There's a couple of passages. In 17, verses 6 through 9, this is Jesus in the high priestly prayer. He's praying to God the Father. And he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, that God gave, God chose, God appointed, 
So I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they have come to know everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. And a fantastic passage in John chapter 10. Verse 24 says, The Jews gathered around Jesus, and they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, then just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We have this backwards. We think that if we want to become sheep, we have to believe. But that's backwards. The reason you don't believe is because you are not sheep. If you back it up a little bit earlier in that chapter, in verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. In a few minutes, we're going to get into this concept that there is a tree and that the Gentiles have been grafted in. I just want you to remember, one flock with one shepherd. There's not two trees, but we are all part of the elect, the children of God. But not everyone has been selected to be part of the elected. In verse 7, so let's go back to Romans 11. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. It translates sleep. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then David comes in from Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. He's talking about, it's this concept in in Psalm 69 of hospitality. They gave me sour wine and gall to drink. There's a rejection here, and because of that, there has been a hardening. But what we are getting here in this first part of chapter 11 is that this rejection is not total, and as we go on, the rejection is also not final. God has not rejected his people forever, that God has sidelined them and there is a plan for restoration. It's hard to understand. And I, my wife and I, we even talked about this last Sunday afterwards and we're just like, really? Like, is that, is that how God works? Um, 
Charles Ryrie has what I, I think is a pretty simplistic but great definition of this idea of election. He says, let us put it this way. There are unsaved elect people that are alive today who, though elect, are now lost and they will not be saved until they believe. One person asked me last week, well, what do we do if, if God is chosen and he's kind of made up his mind, what are we supposed to do? How do we, why, why even go out? I want to come back to that statement in John chapter 10 when he says, I have other sheep. There, there was a missionary named David Livingston. He was alive in the 19th century and he went through Africa and he evangelized. You could go to Westminster Abbey today and on his tombstone are the words, I have other sheep. And that is an amazing story, but an an even greater story is about a guy named Peter Cameron Scott. He was born in 1867. He came after Livingston and God set his heart to go to the people of Africa and to evangelize, to tell the people there. He goes to Africa and they, when I went to Kenya, I got like nine shots, right? And I still came back sicker than a dog. I, I flew into LAX at 9.30 at night. I got home at 11. I kissed my wife and said, I'm home. I'm going to the ER, all right? Scott goes to Africa and he gets sick. He gets the fever, malaria. And he, he comes back and he has to get medication. He, he, he gets... He gets healed, and then the next time he goes back again, and this time he brings his brother with like just more fervor, and like we're doing this together, and his brother dies. After his brother dies, he gets malaria again. He leaves the mission field, and he goes back. He's from Scotland. As he has been healed and restored, he finds himself at Westminster Abbey, and he looks at the tombstone of David Livingston, And he sees these words, I have other sheep. How are these sheep going to know if we don't tell him? So the call for us is not to sit back and say, well, God, you chose, just go for it. We are called missionally, evangelistically to go out and to go find those sheep, to be the voice of Jesus in this world to be gathering up. I made a little chart. I don't know if this helps. Maybe it will. But God, before time, in his foreknowledge, he looks out over history to come and he sees the sea of humanity in our depravity and out of humanity, he chooses, he elects. Now, that election, it's a smaller circle than the sea of humanity. We know that the road leading to everlasting life is narrow. The path to destruction is wide. But amongst the elect, there are Jews who are elect and there are Gentiles who are amongst the elect. There are also Jews and Gentiles who are not. Somebody came up to me last week. How is it that Jewish people can't go to heaven? They have to, they have to believe. And God chose for the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians. Now, I want to give the other side of this. I want you to understand, and I, I wrestle with this, and this is something we have to wrestle with to understand the heart of God in all of this. But in First Timothy, it says, First of all, then I urge that, the, that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, it says it right there. God desires for everybody to be saved. How can God then condemn people to be eternally separated? How can he have the elect and the non-elect? It's a problem, right? Like, we, what do we do with that? Second Timothy, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, hold on, God may grant. Who? God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Do you see that in the verse before? They would come to know the knowledge of the truth. Who gives that? God would grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Here's another passage that you're probably familiar with. Don't let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some counsel on us, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You look at that and say, how could there be elect if God desires, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come? My best explanation for this, and it's okay if we disagree, may that push you into greater study, that I believe that there is a difference between the desire and God's heart and the will of God. Does that make sense? God wishes that all would be saved, but the will of God is that not all are saved. Now, I want to push you into some further study and a tool to help you. I put this in your outline. We've done Right Now Media. We launched that about six weeks ago. Since then, I think we're, over 1,100 people have signed up for it. Uh, on there, you can search in the, in the box. Actually, we put it right up there on the top row. Is uh, John Piper has an amazing study. It's like 10 hours long. If you really, if you get like, I want to know more about this, I want to understand more, then jump on it. Um, but this is the, the five points of Calvinism that he goes through. But you can search the word TULIP, and that, that is the acronym there that you can see. Um, but I, I just pray that maybe that would free you up to just get into some greater study on that. All right, let's go back to Romans 11. So God has a plan, and that plan includes the Jewish people, but this plan also includes the Gentiles. So this is what we ask again. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. When you see those words, it means God forbid that that would happen. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them, the Jewish people, jealous. Again, our definitions, you're either Jewish. If you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. Most of you in here are Gentile, except me and my friend over there. <laughs> I think my family's here too. But this is, this is your task in this world, is to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. God is not done with the Jewish people. Now there's this idea, and I put this on the back of your outline, it, there's a concept known as supersessionism or we call it replacement theology. It's this idea that God is done with the Jewish people, 
that all of the covenants, all of the blessings, all the promises that God made to the Jewish people are no longer for the Jewish people, but they are for the church. I want to show you that God is not done with the Jewish people, that he very much has in mind a plan that includes both. But God's promises never fail. His covenant with his people, the Jewish people, never fail. It's not merged into one, but we are all children of God. Now, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. This is taken from Deuteronomy 32. And it says this, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. We're going to get into this illustration of a tree. Now, I want you to think about this tree... And uh, maybe you've actually, like, there's some crazy trees out there. Like, you could get, like, I think something called, like, a fruit salad. Like, one tree with, like, four different kinds of fruits. There's this idea of grafting. And, and Paul's going to illustrate God's relationship with the Jewish people and God's relationship with the Gentile people through this concept of the tree and grafting. So, let's look. In verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Listen up, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, they've been rejected so that everybody who's part of God's elect, Jew and Gentile, reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? They're coming back. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are too. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. And you stand, you're in because of your faith. Don't be conceited, don't be arrogant, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Let me explain. This idea of grafting. We actually have an arborist among us, Brandon Elrod, and we sat down and we talked through this passage because I wanted to understand this from his mind. And we talked through what this idea of grafting is. And when you graft something, you are actually taking one tree and you find a branch you want this to be a, a, a good branch. You cut it off, and, and that little piece that has been cut off is called the scion, like the car, right? You take that scion, and you want to care for it because you want it to take root in the tree that you are grafting it into. As we started talking about this, I thought, this is really interesting. It, I, I wanted to go to this place of, okay, God cut off the Jewish people and he wanted to care for them and keep them and they're off to the side so that when it's time, he's going to bring them back in and they will be healthy and wonderful. 
And that isn't the picture at all. They were broken off because they were dead. Trampled underfoot, lying on the ground. And the, the idea and the question is, can God take something that is dead and lying on the ground, can he take a people, a nation, and graft them back in again? He's God. Absolutely. They were dead. And this is the kindness and the severity of God. And he says, hold on. Just because you were grafted in, you once were outside of the party and you've been in, don't look out the window and say, look, you insiders, you're now outsiders. We're closing the door. No, the door is staying open. And if you get cut off, you were never part of the elect to begin with. So God's hardening of Israel is not total and it's not final because he's bringing them back. Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you are grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And it's one thing to take something that's totally foreign. You take a, a wild tree and you cut off a branch and you take it into this garden and you try to bring it in. I mean, the graft sometimes does not take. It will reject. But imagine taking from that same tree and you bring it back in. What God is describing here through Paul is there is a reconciliation that is going to happen that is on par with the celebration that we read about in the story of the prodigal son. A great celebration. Kill the fatted calf. My people who were gone have come back to me. And in verse 25, it says this, For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. There have been pieces all throughout the Old Testament, and, and, and Paul is going to reveal something to us. There's a mystery that is going to be unfolded. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We right now are living in that age. The fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in, but there will come a day where the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete. And then it says, so all Israel will be saved. Israel will realize that they rejected Remember we talked about this last week. The stumbling stone that was in the way. They didn't find Jesus along the way. They found Jesus in the way. There will come a point in time, and Zechariah 12 talks about this too, they will mourn for him. They will mourn for their rejection of Jesus. All Israel will be saved. All of God's elect in Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. And so they will be grafted back in. From the standpoint of the gospel, in verse 28, they are enemies for your sake. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. 
they are enemies from the standpoint of the gospel. And this happens. Um, Marilyn and I, years ago, um, went to Manhattan, New York, to hand out water bottles that said, Got Messiah? There's a lot of Jewish people in New York. So we were reaching out, gave them water bottles and tracts. And right in front of you, when, when people hear that you are handing out tracts, trying to reach out to the Jewish people, there's this other group of people called anti-missionaries. They will set up right in front of you. So we'll give a, a water bottle, say, you can come to know Jesus as your Messiah. And they're handing out a flyer right in front of them saying, everything they're saying is totally wrong. For the sake of the gospel, they're enemies. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. The Jewish people are hardened even today. They've been disobedient, but that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up in all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. The mercy that you and I have been shown one day will be shown to the Jewish people. God is not done with the Jewish people. You have to read this from that standpoint and from what Paul is talking about. This is Paul, a Jewish believer, telling the people, and he's an apostle to the Gentiles, saying that you have been saved, but your job in this world is to provoke other people to jealousy, provoke my people to jealousy. And so we get to the end of chapter 11, and this has been heavily doctrinal. There's a lot of theology and theology is not just good for our minds, but there has to be a transformation in our heart. It needs to bring us closer to Jesus. Good theology should always lead to good worship. Check this out. In verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. This word unfathomable is, is following the footsteps of God, but they disappear. You can't trace his footsteps. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You've been saved for a purpose, and God has a great and awesome plan. Yes, it includes you, and yes, it includes his Jewish people. God has not written them off. So as application this morning, I want to do a couple of things. Uh, in the bulletin, there's a quarter sheet of paper, and it has on there Romans 10, my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. I think most people have a Jewish friend that they know who is not saved. On there, I'd like you to write their name, prayer request for that person. Somebody who is not saved and who is Jewish. But not just them because Gentiles are grafted in as well. And so I want you to also think of who is somebody, and, and Matt alluded to it even in the announcements this morning, who, who's somebody that you want to invite here to Calvary, especially in the next couple of weeks? But we want to be praying for their, their salvation. I have other sheep. Who needs to know about it? 
We need to gather them into the flock. So I want you to write those down. We have a team of 57 people going to Israel in about three weeks. When we go, we're going to take these, we're going to pray over them, and then we're going to bring them to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. There's no special magical power at the wall, but it is a pretty awesome thing. We're going to take these and we're going to put them in the cracks of the wall, and we're going to pray over these people. And I want you to join us in praying for them. We have a blog. You can go on to, I, I put it on the back of the outline, calvarylife.org slash Israel. You'll be able to follow us and see what we're doing. But even pray that as we are out there and witnessing and seeing Jewish people who are not yet saved, that we would be a light, that we'd be provoking them to jealousy. Even our tour guide, who we're going to be going with, he's not a believer. His name is Yehuda Ashkenazi. Does that sound Jewish to you? But that we would be a a light and a blessing. And and so we want to be able to be praying for them. The other thing we're going to do this morning, you see that we don't have the station tables set up. Um, We're going to be taking communion together corporately this morning. So communion will be passed. And we want to remember, this is not just symbolic, but this is the culmination of everything of who we are, is, is the bread and the cup. And so we remember, and we're going to pass that this morning. A little later, we're going to take offering, and so that's when you can actually drop that name in. You can drop it into the bags when we pass those a little bit later, or in the boxes. But we want to go before God, and we want to worship. But take this time, be thankful for your salvation. And think about how you might stimulate and provoke others around you to jealousy so that they might come to know our God. Let's pray. God, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for reaching out to me. Lord, I know that there are some in here who are part of your elect who have not yet chosen to believe and to put their trust and their faith in you. I pray, God, this morning that you would work in each of our hearts to deepen our trust in you, to start our trust in you. God, that you would be glorified. Help us to live lives missionally, that we would enter into the context that you've given us, the environment, the people that you've given us, wherever that is, and that we would look and say, God, are these your sheep? And that we would be bold and we would step into that. God, this morning, we remember what you did for us. That you sent your son Jesus that we might have eternal life. So as we take this bread and this cup, we remember, we drink deeply, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.